So North Korea doesn't really stand for anything, but one thing it stands for, it exists to oppose the United States. It is the week of August 22nd, and welcome to the fifth episode of our summer podcast series, Breaking Chains, Fighting the New Global Repressors. I'm Lester Munson, your host. All over the world today, we are witnessing nation states such as Iran, China, Russia, and North Korea cracking down on citizens within their borders and expanding their repressive aims internationally. In this series, I will talk to a range of special guests about the stark reality the world now faces, as the rapid development of technology makes it easier for nation state actors to commit widespread human rights abuses, what can we in the United States do to confront these abuses and protect global security? Today's episode will feature Yang Li, former CIA Deputy Assistant Director for the Korea Mission Center and former Chief of the Korea Department. He joins us today to talk about the human rights situation on the ground in North Korea. We explore how life for the average North Korean has developed over Yang's career studying and analyzing the hermit kingdom. He will also provide insights on the differences between operations and analysis at the CIA and what it takes to be a good intelligence analyst. We're thrilled to have him. Yang, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate the invitation. So you spent uh, a good chunk of your career at the Central Intelligence Agency doing analysis of North Korea. Bef- yes. Before we dive into the North Korea issues, tell us about the difference between analysis and operations at the agency and what your role was to the extent you can tell us. Sure. Um Analysis. I, I, um, I, I, I tell people that if you ever thought about being an academic, being a college professor, um, maybe uh, being a CIA analyst may be a good job for you. Um, I myself started off on the academic track. A um, lot of ABDs in the ranks of CIA analysis. Can't really swing a dead cat without hitting an ABD. And um, it, it draws a type of people um, that loves to read, write, think, and learn. And if you ask those are things that, that you love doing about international affairs, then a career at the CIA as an analyst would be would be wonderful. And that's the analytic core. You're expected to build expertise. And if you go into management um, like I did um, as an as an analyst, you're helped to you're expected to um, help your analysts continue to grow uh, and lead re- research program. Really a big part of your job is as a one part of his HR, taking care of people. The second part is uh, being a research director, a program of analysis, and that uh, your program of analysis, that it's relevant. It's relevant to the National Security Directive. It's, it's relevant to the, uh, the president's policy. Um, so th- those are the key parts of the job. Now, operations. It's CIA operations, I mean, there are many different operations types, right? Uh, I think a lot of the people you see um, on way portrayed in movies, even the agency, I think that's more kind of the, the more paramilitary officers, which is a career field. Um, and if you're a member of the special forces <laughs> and already in the elite military unit, um, I, I think I mean, I'm pretty sure they can find their way if that's what they wanted to do, or if they want to do, 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 do those things for the agency. That's one type of operations. But generally, the bulk of CIA operations, when we say operational counterparts, those are colleagues who are um, assigned overseas in various capacities, uh, whether official or unofficial. And um, they try to find out information. They try to meet people, have meetings, openly or clandestinely, and and um, find sources of information that's of value to the United States. Once again, not just because it's interesting to you, but it falls under the president's policies, the national national security directives, and that is relevant to uh, to 
to what the country cares about and what the policymakers say is a priority for the nation. So as an analyst, you're learning, you're reading, you're studying. What were the particular challenges for being an analyst on North Korea specifically that you encountered? I was in the CIA for 22 years, from January 5th, 1997 to March 29th, 2019. Uh, in those 22 years, I had maybe two or three assignments that was not uh, career related. And one of them was a daily, was, one of them was a briefer on the president's daily briefing staff. And um, you know, during the last two years of the Bush administration, I remember uh, my boss, director of national intelligence, Mike McConnell, always saying, you know, it's just intelligence analysis is tough. Um, sometimes you're just looking at the world through a soda straw. And I love that analogy that you're looking at the world through a soda straw, because as a North Korean analyst, uh, as a North Korean analytic manager, I thought that described analysis in North Korea perfectly. Um, it's like looking through a soda straw. Yeah, that's probably the best description. It's just, you try to look at a map through a soda straw and you cover your other eye and you're kind of looking through the soda and that's, that's intelligence analysis in, in, in North Korea. So there were some limitations on what you were able to discover. Yeah, yeah, and you try to expand the size of that, right? So not satisfied with looking at the world through a sort of stress. So, man, we, it'd be great if we can get it the size of a toilet paper roll, <laughs> get it to be the size of one of those gigantic paper paper towel roll. So you try to expand that scope and you expand that scope um, by leaving your cubicle. Uh, the best analysts never just look at, oh, what does NSA have to say? What does DIA have to say? Just they, they don't just live in the classified world because if you're if you're living only in a classified world, you're not only looking at, you wish you're looking at the world through a soda straw, you're looking at the world through one of those coffee straws things. Um, that's, it's really severely limited. So expanding that scope and expanding your perspective, you should go, you need to talk to, you need to read, you know, honestly, you need to read. You need to read books. You need to um, to keep up with what's going on in, in academic literature. Um, some of the most insightful uh, things that I've that over the years that I that I saw is it's written in academic literature, um, and it, it gives you a whole new perspective on, on North Korea. You need to talk to other experts. You need to talk to. Um, there are plenty of people who watch North Korea for uh, for a living. Uh, you know, and you know what? They they have something to teach you. Uh, you need to talk to you need to talk to talk to your uh, counterparts. You need to talk to the liaison. Uh, I mean, we, we have a South Korea has a very professional intelligence service, national intelligence service, and they are and they are North Korea experts. That's what they do. Ninety five percent of the job time. And so it's um, that's how you kind of try to expand that scope. So uh, I think most of our listeners are, are have at least some familiarity with the challenges that North Korea poses on the national security front, nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. proliferation, yeah. uh, perhaps some international crime issues. We want to focus today on human rights uh, inside North Korea. What, what can you tell us, just generally speaking, about the human rights situation in North Korea right now? Um, human rights situation in North Korea, it's, well, it's easy to say, just to say, well, it's bad. There are no human rights in North Korea to what we expect to Western standards. Um, there are human rights to a point in that the government's not going to just randomly victimize you. Uh, there's usually a reason, and the reason may be political or corruption. Um, so if you never express your opinion and ne never express your opinion, keep keep your all your opinions to yourself, and just focus on day-to-day -day survival. Yeah, you can live. You can live and survive in North Korea. But if you have an ounce of independent thought, and you want to get your voice heard, or you want to just offer up an alternative alternative thought about what would be best for the country, the community, even your village. Oh uh, yeah, then you're gonna have a problem. How did you, as as an as an analyst at the agency, 
Tell us about the, the soda straw that you saw on the life of the average North Korean, not someone who's in a high government position, but just the average person who's either a farmer or working in a factory, uh, struggling to get by. How, how were you able to see what their life was like? Uh, you know, the conclusion that I came up with after years of following North Korea is that um, it's 24-7 survive um, and um, that it's all hands on deck right? It's, it's the entire village, entire family, you need to focus on survival. So you can't really have independent thinkers or slackers. There's really no time for that. And it really, that actually, that actually helps stability for the ruling regime. Because when people are just focused on 24-7 day-to-day survival, they don't have time, really time to think about anything else, like organize or, or try to try to try to organize or, or, or resist or anything like that. They're just focused on survival. Um, and at this, that's once again, that's the basically people's lives. Um, and if you're a work unit, if you're a factory, once again, your survival depends on, you're kind of on your own um, uh, in, in paying salaries. You're kind of on your own uh, finding raw materials. Uh, you can't really rely on central government for anything, and you don't want to. And you don't want to get the central government's attention because usually that means bad things in North Korea. So it's, people people tend to be very self. I think people over the years have figured it out um, since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the uh, end of the Soviet aid that was floating the country. That was floating the country. I guess it's almost going on thirty years now, um, and that's or past thirty years. So in those in those thirty years, and having gone through the severe famine in the mid nineteen nineties. Left to, left to their own devices. People have figured it out. Of course, back in the 90s, uh, there was this issue of uh, the West providing food aid, the U.S. in particular, providing food aid to the World Food Program to mm-hmm. North Korea because of that crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how have you seen the trends in the last 20 years while you were working on these issues? How have you seen the trends impact average North Koreans? Have they, have they had crises like that since then, or have things gotten more stable? Things have gotten better. Things have gotten a lot better. Um, so in the mid 1990s, it was it it was just ridiculous. Um, um, some of the some of the some of the reports from the from the aid workers. Um, a lot of you know there was a lot of medical school volunteers um, in China helping the helping helping the refugees, and some of the, some of the journal articles. Um, that was being published, it, 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 it painted a very bleak picture. And honestly, politically, the big question in the mid-90s when I started the organization is that when is North Korea going to collapse? Uh, and that's a question that I, that I used to receive often as, as a North Korean analyst. And, and eventually, after a few years, what I, and after having been on the account for a few years and being, being a CIA analyst, I, um, you know, my response was North Korea has already collapsed. What you see today is not North Korea. It's this is it's, it's some other form of North Korea. When people talked about the Korean miracle in the 1960s and 1970s, they weren't talking about South Korea. They were talking about North Korea. Um, North Korea had higher GDP, education. North Korea was ahead of South Korea in almost everything. Um, and that ship, that tie started to change in the, in the 1970s, late 1970s. And by 80s, South Korea started. And by now, it's just, Two different worlds, right? Uh, North Korea and South Korea, complete two different worlds. Uh, first world and the developing world. And it's um, what within that, within that other collapse, people, uh, 
you know, there's not a good estimate of how many people have died uh, during the North Korean famine in the 90, in the mid 90s. Um, some of the qualitative ac- accounts are pretty horrific, and you can easily you can easily see that there's maybe about a million, maybe up to a million people may have perished. Um, but within that churn, what figure people figured out um, that they that they can survive, uh, left to their own devices, that they were able to survive. And a smart decision that the North Korean government made, Kim Jong-il being in charge at the time, was was allowing black markets to exist, allowing lax border control. Because if government, there's no longer any any food in the public distribution system, and North Korean defectors always said, um, this one one woman, it's, in, it's documented in the book uh, by Barbara Demick, um, I think it's called Nothing to Envy, great book. And she said she realized she was a bad communist because it, because all the good communists died waiting for the public distribution system to open. Um, people, a lot of people eventually came to a decision. We can't, and usually after a family member starved to death, we can't just sit here and die. They just cry, they start walking, try to go across to uh, China, beg for food or do anything. Um, he allowed that to happen. And uh, that continues to happen. Not so much the begging anymore, but the, the cross-border trade, um, it, mostly informal trade, um, and, and the black markets. It's not called black markets, but it's, those exist. And it's semi-official, right? You don't just set up a corner stand. Over the years, the order has emerged within the chaos where, yeah, you can go there on certain days. And I'm sure that there's some kind of bribery involved where like the local police chief gets a cut. But those are the places allowing those inf- informal economy to exist and kind of allowing the fact that, um, that there's the North, North Korean currency, that the, the economy exchanges are taking, taking place in either in renminbi, euros or dollars. Uh, uh, in the informal economy, allowing that to happen uh, it, it has allowed the North Korean population to survive. And once again, they figure it out um, after almost 30 years left to their own devices. It's 24-7, but you know, they, can, they can get by on their own. So the government at this point, I, I've always said, North Korean government really doesn't offer anything, doesn't provide you food. Yeah, it's got school, but it's mostly ideology taught at the schools. They don't provide you food. Um, it's, they don't they don't do anything for you other than they can come and kill you. Tell us about uh, these prison camps uh, that are uh, evidently fairly uh, prominent in North Korea for folks who are willing to speak out. Is that mm-hmm. is this something that the average North Korean has to worry about on a daily basis? What is and, and then what role does it play in sustaining yeah. the regime? Yeah, yeah I, I think, um, you know, for for a long time, it, it was so there's a this a this another big change that while I was on on the account um, in late '90s, early 2000s, we just started getting this influx of North Korean refugees uh, arriving in South Korea and other places. So by so these are people who started walking '94, '95 at the height of the famine, and by '99, they they were making their way out of China. You know, some some of them were showing up in Cambodia. Right in, in Indochina, so they traveled through those networks, and they were finally being, and most of them ended up arriving in South Korea. Got to the point where South Korean government was renting a 747 from the Korean airlines to, <laughs> to for to have to organize repatriation flights. Um, and some of those survivors, people that walked, it turned out walked out of the prison camp. Um, and you know, I, th- I think there's now been books been written. I, I read at least one uh, about a, a, a young man who said he, he survived one of the camps. 
Uh, and there's been a, I, it was, there was even a Netflix documentary about it. Um, so you have more and more people coming out and speaking about it. And it's well known in North Korean society. Um, and the, it, it's, it does it, does it help stability? Does it help? Yeah. So it's, it's somewhat of a coercive method. Um, I think it helps to keep the elites in mind as a threat, right? You want to end up here. Um, like Judeo-Christian, um, there's a Christian ethics above hell and why people should behave themselves. Well, you don't want to go to hell, do you? It's, well, if you're an elite in North Korea, you're in Pyongyang. Well, you like your life? Well, you, well, you don't want to speak up. You don't want to raise your hand. You don't want to, you, you, you and your family, you guys don't certainly don't want to end up in, end up in hell on earth, uh, end up in a prison camp. Um, so I think, I think that's, it's, it's useful that way. It's useful that way as, as, a, as a tool, but what does it do actually for control? Um, I, I, I think, no, I think it's just, I think it's just one of those, it's, it's, one, it's, it's, it's a cruelty. It's one of those threat of punishment and, and, and cruelty. Tell us how the average North Korean gets information. Do they have multiple sources? Is it just the government? Is there anything from outside North Korea that gets inside that lets people know what's yeah. happening in the world? Yeah. Once again, there's been a lot of um, study done on this. Um, mostly from South Korean universities, and it's still word, word of mouth. Um, it takes, it could take weeks, but eventually um, the word, the, the word of mouth, um, it gets to, it gets to, it gets to people inside North Korea through China. One of the things that, um, that's documented, that, that Barbara Demick talks about in her book, Nothing to Envy, is about how um, refugees in South Korea can make a phone call and talk to their relatives through a series of networks uh, in, inside North Korea and how you can send, send money. <laughs> Fascinating book. Um, and um, these are, these are, uh, these things go on. So once again, the word of mouth through word of mouth, through, obviously there's a courier system of people who I'm sure at a very stiff commission will, will deliver dollars to your relatives in let's say Chongjin, the far up North city. And once again, with the, with the, network of cell phones, cards, you can have a five minute conversation with a relative. Um, so th the word of mouth, apparently that people and goods and people and goods make their way in. So the word of mouth is apparently how, how, get, how they get their, um, um, how people get information. And apparently that network also um, includes South Korean movies and dramas and on USBs snuck in. It's just easier to carry, right? Put it under your tongue, if nothing else, um, and uh, and just uh, sneak it in. So people people are pretty well aware. So that's another question a lot of people ask me. It's like, oh, they might just not be aware if they only knew how much life was better. No, they know, they know. But it's um, it takes tremendous courage and mostly just desperation that I need to go or I am going to die is what drive people to to leave. It's it's really hard to make a decision to leave all you know. And your entire life, um, and you know, once not a lot of North, a lot of North Korean, um, a lot of North, North, a lot of North Koreans um, in South Korea, they have a hard time. Some even try to defect back, right? They try, and, and some make it back um, because they just don't know how to survive in that system, survive in that society. And it says, well, you have freedom to speak up, and it says, yeah, but you know, that's not that doesn't really mean anything to me. Freedom to say what whatever I want. Why would I want to just like go around saying whatever I want? I mean, I mean, that's not going to put food in my mouth, right? Not going to put clothes on my back. Um, so a lot of them have a, a lot of them have a hard time. So I think it's the people who stay. Yep, information is 
lack of information is not the reason why they stay. It's something for it's much deeper as a human being. What's your assessment of how much the North Korean population believes their own government when they when they get news from official sources or are told to do certain things or certain policies are handed down? What's the what's the credibility of Pyongyang for for the citizenry? Um, yeah, I think I think the same goes for how the Soviets, right, and the the Russian population now uh, about Kremlin propaganda by Ukraine, uh, China in the in the greatly forward multi-tongue days of the 1950s and 1960s. I think I think people become cynical. Uh, people become cynical, but I think what what you find with the North North Koreans that South Korea has this whole government as a whole program of bringing people in, debriefing them, and getting them settled in, and 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 includes things like how do you use an ATM, right? <laughs> There's like, how do you go and order at a restaurant? How do you make purchases? At, so they, they go through this whole course. And a lot of them are surprised at some of the historical information, like North Korea invaded South Korea, um, that, that, that the United States, every American does not spend all their time thinking about how they're going to take over North Korea. Um, I mean, you'd be lucky if most Amer- I mean, I don't think most Americans could find Korea on a map, <laughs> or you're or you're talking to an educator one if they know there's at least two at least two Koreas. <laughs> so th- things like that are shocking to them. Um, I had um I had a colleague who who was a was an aid group. I think he was I forget I forget why, but he wasn't an uh, he wasn't a CIA colleague. It was a it was a colleague broadly as a in part of Korea Watchers. And I think that that person, um, Caucasian, speaks fluent Korean, um, lived in Korea for a long time, and now w- w- was working in this international organization, and they had a chance to um, visit North Korea. And I think there was, they were part of a group, I think it was a food survey, like nutritional or something. And, you know, it would have been all staged. But he said whenever he speaks, whenever he speaks Korean, let's say, in, in, among Koreans in China, even among North Koreans, there's a shock in Seoul. There, there's a shock. And he said, um, the North Koreans and North Koreans, they didn't even bat an eye. So he said, on one hand, he thought it could be maybe they were just really well coached. But it, the situations that he was in, he said he wasn't. He wasn't 100% coached. Then he thought so, some of these people are so isolated. As far as they know, everybody in the world speaks Korean. So, so uh, there's the level of understanding. Then there's something deeper. When you, that's all you know, that's your entire lifetime. It does change a person. It does change. A, it does change a person's brain and, and, and the view of the world. Uh, there's a UN report that says there's approximately 50,000 North Koreans working as slave labor outside of North Korea in places mm-hmm. like China, Russia, countries in the Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. What's what's the story with those folks? Are they are they um, are they free to go wherever they want, but they choose to remain part of the North Korean operation? What uh, are they? Are we talking to them? The- yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> it's um, it's they're not free to go wherever they wherever they want, and they're in a, they're in situations where they don't talk to anybody other than their minders, um, and. At this point, I think it's mostly China and China and, and Russia, um, with the spotlight on human rights and North Korean laborers. I think that's that's something that you know that it, it, under the Bush administration, the Obama under the Bush administration and the Obama administration, it, it, it lot of that, lot of that rolled away. Um, 
um, yeah, it, there's like it's a factory work in East, East, Eastern Europe um, that, that, that used North Korean laborers. But once again, uh, with the and and really a lot of it was brought up brought up by the North Koreans themselves with the nuclear test and the missile tests, and and for the for any EU country EU member country, it's kind of embarrassing that you have North Korean workers living under these conditions. Then you have, and when the EU started laying sanctions, that just was not tenable. But um, with, with the Far East Russia, a lot of lumberjacks uh, cutting down trees. Um, and in China, then, I mean, the Chinese government will not say anything about this, but lot, especially in the border areas, a lot of, lot of North Korean, a lot of North Korean labor, North Korean businesses. I mean, um, you, you look at, even if you go to the border city of Dandong, which if you have a visa to China, you visit uh, as a US citizen, as far as far north as you can go, then across the river is North Korea. All the North Korean restaurants, it's all, all the Korean restaurants, it's all, is mostly North Korean. Um, you can hear in their accents. Um, you ask them, and I speak, I speak Korean, so I ask them, where are you from? Sir? And they say, well, I'm from Pyongyang. And I figure, well, I guess you got to know somebody to get that job, <laughs> even to work in a restaurant in China. So it's, um, it, it goes on. And I know I've mentioned like, sanctions. Um, that's one of the reasons why I'm not a big, I just, I don't put much faith in sanctions because without China would support a lot of the um, non-proliferation sanctions or all of the non-proliferation sanctions, China, Russia, they're good about the non-proliferation stuff because they don't want that problem at their, on their, on their doorstep. But everything else, it's, it's really not in their interest um, to, to put more pressure on the North Korean regime. And I think one of the things that, that you see this in American policymaking, me, American policymaking is that there's degree of naivete where we expect we we expect people to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Well, you know what? Welcome to life on planet Earth. Ninety nine percent of the world that does that's not how it works. And really, why would China do anything that advances U.S. national security interests? Uh, North Korea is making problem, making uh, trouble for, for for North Korea is making trouble for the United States. That's great. It just sucks away more more North Korea more military resources. Human rights and democracy in North Korea. Why? So U.S. forces Korea can move its headquarters from Seoul to Shinichu. It's just it's um it's absolutely not in their interest to support U.S. sanctions, U.S. policy on sanctions that's not related to like weapons of mass destruction. And you know they don't. I mean, why would they invite themselves? Why would they invite a crisis on their border if there's a humanitarian crisis on their border where these people are all going to end up in China because they're not uh, walking across to the DMZ. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about that border between China and North Korea. Is it, how different is it than the DMZ between North Korea and South Korea? How porous is it? How much is going back and forth and China kind of looks the other way and North Korea looks the other way? Yeah. I mean, China does most, mostly China, very small strip with Russia. Um, and some, 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 some areas include the, as you get closer to the Russia part, um, the, the rivers, you can actually walk across certain sections. Um, going across the main, the main thoroughfare, the Yalu River, across North and North, and North Korea to uh, China. Once again, it's not in the country's best interest to crack down on border crossers because that's the informal economy. That's what, once again, late 1990s, it's whether Kim Jong-il or somebody who convinced Kim Jong-il or they just figured it out for themselves, People are gonna need to need to live, and if we don't allow people to live, in one, they're all gonna die, and you're not gonna have a country left, or they're gonna revolt. So that's a critical pressure valve, and and I think I, I think like any politicians, what we've seen the what we've seen the kind of the 
the the U.S. Mexico border. I think depends on who's depends on. Well, I was about to say it depends on who's in the office. Well, in North Korea, you can you have you'll know who's in the who's in the office. That's not going to change. Um, it may have periodic crackdowns, but it's not. It's never sealed off. While and there there aren't two armies facing each other. Uh, while North Korea and South Korea, that's their bulk of the combat force. Like ninety percent of North Korea's military and ninety percent of the South Korean military is in a, like a ten mile stretch of real estate. Um, so it's and it's all heavily mined. And so it's it's immensely it's immensely that's the key difference right there. It's a fully militarized militarized area versus the not versus an open civilian border, almost like the U.S. Canadian border. I don't think you can even compare it to the U.S. Mexico border. It's it, uh, it's more like a, the U.S. Canadian border. Um, and people always say, well, demilitarized, it's, it was militarized. It, isn't it supposed to be demilitarized? Isn't that a violation? Well, the demilitarized zone is a very narrow stretch of land that's maybe about a mile across that goes the entire country. But the, the area is buffering it, like a 10-mile zone. It's, it's just fully, it's, it's fully militarized. Um, tell, let's talk about the nuclear uh, weapons program in North Korea briefly. How much does that... Um, how much of that is a tool for the North Korean government to uh, administer, you know, kind of control over its own population? And then how much of it is really it positioning itself internationally between South Korea, Japan, Russia, China, the United States, and all of that? Yeah, I mean, the nuclear program doesn't really do anything for internal control. Um, You know, it's, and yeah, it's fair to say if you didn't have, we're spending all their money in, in WMD missiles, nukes, BMWs, and cognac. They could probably feed their own population, uh, <laughs> it's, or, or 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 come pretty close to it by buying weed and other things on the international marketplace. Uh, what it does is that it makes North Korea relevant. Um, North Korea without nuclear weapons is it's just another starving third world country, and there's plenty of that in the in this world. And why does why does why does it get this level of attention or even like this level of aid of and informal economy and everything else because of the nuclear weapons? Uh, it makes North Korea relevant, and North Korea being relevant actually helps their survival. Um, so it's funny. Um, I was about to say ironic, but I don't know if it's a good um, good. I don't know if it's an accurate def- definition of the word irony. You look at South Korea, and Koreans have never been healthier. There's longer. Uh, this generation of Koreans um, are, are living into their 80s and 90s um, because they have good diet, good medical care. They have first world diet, first world medical care uh, and vaccinations and and preventive medicine. So they're now really seeing the kind of the full benefits of a lifespan. Never been well better fed, never been more free to do whatever the hell they want, never been more free to travel. So it's really South Korea is a is a is a is a is a is a black swan in Korean history. North Korea is how Koreans have always lived since the beginning of history. Nasty, brutish, brutish, short, focused on survival, ruled by an all-knowing powerful dictator. That's that's how Koreans have always lived. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's funny that it's that version of Korea, that that version of traditional Korea is, is also the most it's also the most strategically relevant North Korea. And there has never been a, a political entity in the geographic area of Korea, never been a political entity that's more relevant and, and, and strategically important as North Korea. And that's because of the nuclear weapons. 
I, I read, uh, and perhaps it was in Wikipedia, so forgive me for quoting Wikipedia, that in the last 2,000 years, uh, Japan has invaded the Korean Peninsula 900 times. And I don't mean to imply <laughs> anything bad about our, our friends and allies in Japan, but what is, what is the, how, how does that kind of traditional concern over security for Koreans of, about Japan and maybe some of these other places that don't immediately occur to Americans impact yeah. the decisions that Pyongyang is making? Yeah, well, you know, if anybody should reward, it's South Korea, because a lot of that uh, incursion was uh, Japanese pirates raiding coastal villages, Pusan, Mokpo, um, un- until the big one, the Hideyoshi War, where they went far up almost to the Chinese border. And it was the Ming Dynasty intervention that pushed the North Koreans, pushed the Japanese all the way back. And it was a six-year negotiation to end that war. And I always like to call it, that was the first DMZ talks. <laughs> The six-year negotiation between Hideyoshi and the Ming Dynasty. Um, that, that, you know, that's, 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 all, that's all BS, North Koreans. Um, they, um, I, one of the other things that I always, always told our policymakers, and depending on who I was talking to, um, I, I got accused of just being a cold warrior, um, which I took that as a, I, I take that as a badge of pride. North Korea really cannot afford to be friends with the United States. North Korea, North Korea doesn't really stand for anything. And it's a political organism that thrives on confrontation because one of the worst things you can do to North Korea, and President Bush did this, is that he, he said something like, not going to reward a toddler for throwing food at the table. He was just going to ignore him. Um, and, um, and that was like the worst thing you could do to North Korea. It's just not pay attention. Um, and of course, they will do something to pay attention, like you know, provocations against South Korea, launching missiles over Japan, nuclear tests where you have to deal with it. Um, so North Korea doesn't really stand for anything, but it, it, it's, it's one thing it stands for. It exists to oppose the United States. All the sacrifice. So if you're suddenly friends with the United States, all the sacrifice, grandma and grandpa and uncle that died during the famine, it would have been for nothing. For what? So you can, you can have a U.S. embassy with an American flag in downtown Pyongyang. Um, so you really cannot afford to have the U.S. as a friend. It exists to oppose the United States. If it's, if it doesn't, if it's no longer opposing the United States, they're just poor South Koreans. Um, so it's that, that myth, of that national security myth, is a fi- once again, it's a, fi- it's a myth. It's one of those founding mythologies, kind of like, Father, I chopped down the cherry tree. <laughs> and and it, it's, it's, it's one of the founding myths, and, and it's the it foundations of all their society. This is your kids don't have shoes. It's because American military is about to invade. You're hungry. I'm sorry. This, the sanctions, American military, they just want to take, take over us. They're evil. That's the entire narrative. And once again, people who are coming out of North Korea, that's the hardest thing that they, they have. And it takes months or years to kind of unwind. Once again, I, I, as earlier, that people such as yourself, you didn't wake up this morning. Damn that Kim Jong-un. How am I going to overthrow that guy? I'm going to dedicate my life to it. That, that level, that really people don't care and they're insignificant other than the fact that, that the potential threat that they pose to a neighbor, that they hold, they're holding the neighborhood hostage. Um, that's what makes them relevant. That's hard to kind of psychologically accept. All right, let's make this the exit question. Uh, Yang, in your experience, how much is the government in Pyongyang under, under whatever dictator collaborating and cooperating with the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing? Um, 
You know, that's there. It's not a, it's not a close, it's a close relationship, but not a close relationship. Do they like each other? No, there's really not much love loss between the North Koreans and the Chinese. Um, but in a, it's very transactional. Uh, it's Chinese more than anything else value the buff, value that real estate between the Yalu River and the DMZ. And call it whatever you want, but they value that buffer between the Yalu River and the DMZ. Um, the the Chinese, the North Koreans, on the other hand, North Koreans see the Chinese as they sold out, right? They're 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 sold out. They would tell the Chinese Communist Party that you sold out to the capital capitalists. I'm I'm sure the Chinese Communists would say, really, hereditary communist leaders. Where did you find that? Where did Marx write about that? <laughs> right. Um, so there's really no love lost there I, I the party if there's any ties that kind of weather that even they if they detest each other that they kind of come back to it i think it's a party to party ties so i think they they value the korean workers party to the and the chinese communist party party to party ties and it's more the kind of the revolutionary bond between mao Zedong and, and kim il-sung and they didn't like each other either <laughs> and so there's that but there's really no close coordination um but there's recognition on on North Korea's part about about um, about how much it depends on China. But fake control, with in international relations theory, this theory called um, the tyranny of the weak, uh, where the weak have a lot of leverage. Because and even if you have fake control, that doesn't equal to behavior control. And I think that's a classic definition of uh, China's relationship with North Korea. Kim Jong Kim Jong Il uh, in the last year of his life visited China. I think like five times. That really emphasized the importance and uh, trying to solidify the succession for his son, Kim Jong-un. That really, really, in a snapshot, shows how important that relationship is. But once again, as important as it is, it doesn't equal to behavior control. If it equal to behavior control, you know, North Korea wouldn't have, wouldn't be doing nuclear tests or missile launches because for, for China, it just it's just a headache. Then you got the Americans knocking on your doors saying, oh, you got to do something about this. Uh, so, it, but yeah, I think that's probably the best definition. Young, this was terrific. Thanks for being on the podcast. I'd love to do it again. Let me know. All right, we will. I have a <laughs> feeling something will happen and we will need your expertise. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank our producer, Gabriel Otis, and our editor, Claude Jennings, for their terrific assistance. Join us next time as we continue through the summer to shed great light on the new means of repression, highlighting aggressive expansionist policies that violate the rights of citizens across the globe and proposing serious solutions the U.S. can take to secure and promote democratic values. 